a little excitement too on our part, uh, Julie, because this week is when the ePortrait platform went live for the first time three years ago. So yep. it's our little exactly three years. Yeah. Yes, congratulations to you yep. and the team. Uh, I will raise my hand and say I thought this was a really great idea when you shared it with me. Brilliant and well done to you and uh, both of you for your dedication and perseverance to bring this forward to the world. Thank you very much, Paul. And, and yes, you were one of our first uh, supporter and believer, and we thank you so much for that. And I'm getting a signal from Reader Producer. I think we're going to be bringing uh, Jeff Swart uh, on right now, who's going to be hosting this panel with you, Paul. And so this is the second time we're going to have Megan with us uh, to talk about Pike Speak. She was part of a panel back in December during Online Race Industry Week. Uh, this is a race that for me has a special place in my heart because I grew up watching Ari Vatanen and uh, when I saw that Peugeot going up that hills, uh, that was just a revelation for me. So I'm a huge fan of that race. Hello, Megan. Welcome back. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me. And I'm here with Fred Veach, our interim chairman of the board as well and a uh, multi-year racer Excellent. Welcome, uh, Fred. And good morning, Jeff. So, Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. So, Mr. Fanner, you're in charge, and we'll let you uh, guys take over for the next hour, and we'll see you in about 55 or 58 minutes. Thank you very much, Francisque. And uh, hello again, Megan, and, and uh, nice to meet you, Fred. Nice to meet you. Yes, and I, I suspect you know the, uh, the rascal uh, on the screen with me here, Jeff Swart. Uh, Unfortunately, we do. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it, it, it's great for us all to be here. And obviously, I know what I know about the Pikes Peak uh, Hill Climb from my friend Jeff. And uh, it, uh, it's been the cent uh, central to his life. Uh, I think he's been there 18 times and won, won eight times. Uh, and most most recently and most frequently in Porsches. And hello, Jeff. Hello. <laughs> Good uh, to be here. And, uh, you know, uh, our connection, uh, Paul, my connection goes way back and certainly centralized around racing. And, and uh, you know, one of my earliest assignments in the uh, you know, publishing world was with Road and Track Magazine to cover yeah. a race in Colorado. And I'd never been there before. And this would have been in the early 80s. And I certainly, uh, once I was up on the mountain, found it to be a place like no other place and a race like no other race. And, uh, you know, here all these years later, I feel the same way. So it's pretty special. Indeed it is. In the, uh, in the Broadmoor Pikes Peak Invitational Hill Climb brought to you by Gran Turismo, uh, it will be, it's 99th running here. And it, it's the month of June, it, to me, is Le Mans and Pikes Peak. Uh, and Pikes Peak is one of the most unusual and important motorsports events in the world. Um, and it's enduring appeal uh, is, is magnified in this age of spec racing cars and uh, if you will, commodified competition where it's, uh, uh, it's manufactured motorsports. This is authentic, pure motorsports adventure at the highest level. And I think, you know, what, what I'd like us to get into today and please feel free to shove me aside because I think all of you know a lot more about this than I do. I've only been to Pikes Peak once for the event and I was blown away uh, what I, by what I saw. Uh, you're coming up on your hundredth running next year. Um, and in this post pandemic era where we're seeing a massive surge in motorsports interest, I mean, we're seeing it on our platforms up over hundred percent in traffic, just massive sharing and people want to get outside and want to, you know, breathe fresh air and be around motorsports. I want to start with, with what makes this so special for all of you and, and please just chime in. I'd like to know why you're, why you're all involved. You want to start? Sure. Um, I'll start a little bit. I started with the organization 10 years ago um, and I have just, as Jeff mentioned, you know, Pike Speak is a very, very unique event. Um, logistically and operationally, um, is, it, is, it is like nothing else. We don't own our racetrack, so everything that we put up uh, must come down. Um, but, but to answer your question, Paul, the one thing that I think keeps me going and, and drives me every year to put on the best race possible for our spectators, media, and competitors 
is just the fact that it is so unique and the competitors genuinely get one shot at it each year. And, you know, we do as an office as well. We have one shot to make it the best we can. We try to make improvements year after year, but it's really the competitors with one chance, one run once a year. And there's nothing, there's nothing else in the world like it. It's also an interesting blend too of a uh, blend of professionalism to grassroots in motorsports. And, uh, you know, I think to maybe demonstrate that is to, you know, I'll be sitting there in practice and ahead of me is Romain Dumas, who has just finished racing at Le Mans literally the week before for a brand like Porsche that, you know, obviously I'm very close to. And behind me is a guy who's just ripping it up the mountain in a BMW that his passion has been to run Pikes Peak someday. And he built it, you know, in his garage and had his friends help him and crew with him. And that blend is so amazing. And even to be on the mountain with somebody like Ray Everham, who's known to be a, for being a crew chief. I mean, the winningest crew chief in NASCAR history, I think. And yet he's there on the mountain to race too. So that blend of people all on the same road, same weekend, Everything is totally unique in motorsport. Well, I, I echo that. I joined the board about 13 years ago, found out at the first board meeting that the hill climb was basically broke. Um, it was in danger of just folding because yeah. it was being put on by a bunch of racers who with all due respect, probably don't make good board members. Um, I decided to run for the first time and I've been racing since I was in my twenties, just because it, I thought it looked like a lot of fun, which it is. Uh, and for some stupid reason, people agreed to sponsor me. Um, Jeff knows it's a hook. It's such a unique event because the weather conditions change every day. The road conditions change. The last two or three miles have frost heaves. Those heaves change, so your line changes. And it's just the ultimate challenge of you against the mountain. Yes, you're competing against other people, but it's really about putting it together for one consistent quick run you have 156 chances to mess it up um, to get to the top. And it's, uh, there's such a camaraderie among the drivers. Jeff mentioned this, but the first year I ran, Romain pulled me out of the car to congratulate me on my run. I mean, you don't see that in other events. And then lastly, you mentioned this. We in Bonneville are the last two races where cheating is encouraged. I mean, our classes are pretty broad. <laughs> And if you could, Jeff, I know I shouldn't say that, uh, but the reality <laughs> is, you're live, okay. The reality is, if you can figure out how to make your car go faster within some fairly broad rules, that's great. And yes, we have rules, and yes, we have scrutineering, but it's largely for the safety aspects. And of course, we, you know, we, we try to keep everything within a within a range, but we don't have a BOP. You know, if, if a guy can figure out a faster way to make Audi go up the hill, do it. And that's special. Indeed it is. And, and uh, you know, I think that uh, there's an appetite for that uh, in this world where of sameness. Uh, yeah. And there's an appetite for motorsports to be an adventure where you don't know what's going to happen. And your opponent is yourself. And, and in this case, the mountain uh, that, that, transcends everything else uh and it's a metaphor for you know our lives basically you know climbing 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 as fast as you can go as far you know to to beat your own record and also to beat a record so we have you know these 12.42 miles that are now paved 156 turns at an elevation of 14,115 feet you know uh, uh the that, you know, is something that probably is locked in now, not going to change. You don't have the issue of paved and unpaved. And what is the record now, the all ultimate record for that mountain? I, I, I'm not, Jeff, we maybe have to help. It's, it's Romain DeMoss <laughs> record right now. Yeah. The uh, Volkswagen 4ID electric car, and it was seven, what, Jeff? Uh, no, 743, seven. I think. Yeah. A phenomenal time. Phenomenal time. Uh, we should be able to pull that off off the top of our head. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's a personal place. And, uh, you know, I look at, and as Fred mentioned, you know, you go there, maybe even to back up a little bit. If this road that we get to drive on once a year 
was laid out on flat ground, this road, if it was laid out on flat ground, it would be the most fascinating, most uh, interesting complex of turns available in motorsport from hairpins to sweeping turns to, to long straightaways to decreasing radius. Every type of turn almost in motorsport would exist in this course if it were to be laid on flat ground. You combine that with the fact that it starts, you know, at you know almost nine thousand feet to go up from nine thousand feet and finish at fourteen thousand one hundred fifteen feet up the side of a mountain with the spectacular views. Not that you're looking at them, but that combination of things. But if you were to purely look at the road laid out on flat ground, it would be the best road you've ever driven on in your life. So the combination of things together really creates a dynamic that is. As a driver, it's the part that makes me come back every year. And, and I think that, as Fred said, too, you're really racing against the mountain. And, and you know, to position this mountain in the whole United States, it literally lies on the Continental Divide. And so that everything to the, to the east falls off into the open plains. So the, the mountain pointing up, and, and it's an interesting mountain once you know where you, it is, on almost every flight you make across the United States, you can see it because it really does sit on its own. But because of its placement on the, near the continental divide and opening up to the open plains, it really kind of creates what we all kind of understand in, in um, racing terms, it creates a vortex and it sucks all the weather past it and moves past it. So therefore that mountain, you know, there has 12 months a year that it snows at some point. It mm -hmm. has four seasons, hopefully not always on race day, but inevitably on race day, we seem to get almost all four seasons. And the things that you go against as a driver is obviously the complexity of the road, but at the same time, it it is your own self. You yeah. personally have to race the mountain. And I think that when you talk to drivers who have made it to the summit, you know, there's such a feeling of kind of conquering something personally. And I think that side of it is really special because, you know, racing is so much racing against people and diving under them and taking advantages and, and, and being, you know, in a position to take different uh, corners differently during a race and all this. But this is really a personal, you know, challenge to yourself. And Paul, you and I, um, you know, uh, nurtured and helped a company for a long time, which was no fear. And the tagline for no fear was face your fears, live your dreams. And yeah. I mean, that's really what Pikes Peak is about, you know, yeah. to face your fears of everything that road offers you, but live your dreams by getting to the summit. That's and, a great way of putting it, Jeff. And, and uh, I, I wanted to add too that uh, Richard uh, Vincent uh, on our chat has put in uh, seven minutes, 57 seconds point one four. Yeah, yeah, we, 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 just we got it. it so, yeah. um, and, and Paul, to hit on that a little bit, I know you were asking about the record. So just thinking through my 10 years with the organization, when I started, um, it was a huge feat to break the 10 minute mark. So yeah. we had everything in our, you know, we were all like, if you could break the 10 minute mark, if you could break the 10 minute mark. And so we had a list of the 10 minute men is what we call them. And then time passed and people were starting to, um, you know, jump under that. And then when Loeb was here, um, when he smashed the, the previous record, I think it was 813. Um, yeah. But then we all thought, that's it. That's yeah, it. Can't, can't go, be, faster, can't go faster. He had perfect conditions. It was a perfect day. Um, everyone, including us, you know, that's not going to be broken in our lifetime, blah, 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 blah. He'd been blah, here for blah, three blah. weeks driving the hill every day in a Camaro, absolutely looking at the course. And wow. Loeb's got to be one of the great drivers in the world. He so, is, yeah. You know, and, and Pujo took their Lamar engine and a big budget and came over and were testing and brought other test drivers with them to run other cars and get data. I mean, after Sebastian set that record, it was like, well, that's never going to be fast. Yeah. It can't be done. Yep. So. Um, and then when Volkswagen came in to put their um, million dollar effort in to, to try to break the record, I remember having early conversations with them. And obviously it was a play for Volkswagen as an organization to springboard their whole campaign of moving to electric vehicles yeah. in the next 10, 15 years. And I remember saying kind of off the record to my staff, like, whoo, 
Pike's Peak is a lot of eggs to put in, in your basket. I mean, that is uh, going after that record and, and just because as Jeff was saying, Pike's Peak can throw anything at you and um, the mountain decides, right? So Volkswagen could have had everything set and everything ready and they could have been, and and something one-off could have happened. A deer could have ran out on the road. I mean, you name it, it, it'll happen. So that's what was so crazy about the leap from um, Loeb's record of 813 down to uh, Romaine's. Well, that's, you bring up an interesting point here, um, which I was going to get to when I originally asked the question is that we have this event that started in 1916. And, you know, my, my first exposure was, I think it was on Wide Roller Sports, I believe that, well, I, I saw it when I was a, a, a nine or 10 or 11 years old with my dad uh, watching it on TV. And my dad had, you know, grown up in part of his life in Colorado, been involved in midget racing when he was younger. So he knew a lot about it. Uh, and it was really tied into the uh, kind of USAC national championship scene and the uh, AAA scene. The people from that world were part of it. So we've come from that to living on the very edge of the future in the adoption of new technologies that will drive mobility going forward in this century being demonstrated on the mountain. You know, you can do literally anything here. Um, and does the, the appeal of it as a proving ground for future technologies or as a validation for existing racing programs, you know, what is to stop you from bringing a Lamar prototype, uh, a NASCAR cup car or uh, with a hybrid power or a, an, in the future or an Indy car with a hybrid power to run up the mountain. Is there anything that prevents that? Yeah, and, and this year, in fact, um, Bentley is coming up with a new biofueled engine with Reese Millen driving, trying to set a record. Yeah. Uh, Jeff was up there last weekend when that car was testing. And Jeff, why don't you address it? Very fast car. Yeah, I, you know, it's like uh, Fred says, Bentley is uh, experimenting with this uh, new fuel that uh, Porsche is helping develop. That's been in the news a bit. And, and just even the complexities of it. Yes, it's an amazing mountain, but the complexities of climbing to this altitude uh, and the demands on the engine. I mean, we talk about the demands on drivers, but demands on engine and drivetrain, but primarily engine and engine management is pretty phenomenal. And maybe to put that into perspective in 2010, I came to Pikes Peak to run a Porsche cup car. Now that cup car, and this is kind of a general uh, calculations that Porsche did, that cup car at sea level has 450 horsepower. At the starting line of Pikes Peak, it had 375 horsepower. And at the summit, it had 285 horsepower. Yeah. So, that is pretty phenomenal loss of power, but that's what happens going to altitude. Now, turbocharging comes along and turbocharging starts to make up for that. But nonetheless, the engines have to work hard to develop that kind of power. And when I think about the car that I ran here in 2015 that had, we, we probably ran it between 750 and 800 horsepower at the wheels. Um, that car is essentially working at the summit as if it had over a thousand horsepower. That's how hard everything is working on it. So the demands from the cooling side and developing the horsepower and everything else is pretty phenomenal. And, and engines, modern engines are so sophisticated these days that you know it's a bit like dominoes. When you change one thing, everything else starts falling. So there's a lot of things to look after from an in engine management standpoint. And that's why those technical people on the mountain that are just looking after your engine management, and especially in these major programs that come and run at Pikes Peak, are some of the most important people on the mountain because they're able to then adapt and adjust yeah. everything in the complexities of the motor to operate, not just with horsepower at top, but even to run. I mean, there's been, you know, there's times when even modern cars at the summit won't start up there because it just is a different fuel mixture and air mixture and everything else in it. And um, the complexities also run through braking and through aerodynamics. You'll see this year, especially the Bentley and the Porsche club sports that are running there. They have massive wings relative to the type of wings they run in traditional road racing, just because there's less air to go over the wing and air surfaces to create downforce. So every step of the way, 
is so difficult. And, and if you're a pilot, you know, you're kind of required to wear oxygen over 10,000 feet when you're in an airplane. Well, you at Pikes Peak, you're at 14,000 feet. So most of the drivers these days mm -hmm. have a bottle of oxygen inside the car that they're getting fed as they go up to the summit. And, you know, all of these things are outside the box of the normal things we consider in racing. That's fascinating. And, and I, I have to ask you too, uh, when you're organizing this event, how many competitors do you have? Uh, we'll talk about four-wheeled for a minute. I have some other questions of the other categories beyond that, but how many do you have in terms of entrants that are part of this invitational event? Sure. Well, that changes. That has changed a little bit over time. Obviously, last year with COVID, it was slightly different. Um, this year, we have 60 competitors, and that's about our sweet spot. You know, I think the the board and the the uh, race committee, we really we really are focusing on quality over quantity. Um, and logistically, too, there's only so much space to pit the pit the competitors. There's only so much space for them at the summit. So I think right around anywhere between 50 and 75 would be our ideal numbers each year. Um, we do have a selection process and a selection committee. And you know we have quite a few competitors that enter every year that are turned away if we don't think that their racing experience is up to par. And then typically we do have a wait list if, if people drop out, that sort of thing. So um, it is really prestigious and it's turning into more of, again, we want the times overall from the first to the last to just shrink. Like that's the goal. We want to make yeah. this yeah. the best race in the world with the best machines in the world, with the best competitors in the world. And um, we're, we're getting there over time. So this year we have 60, 60 planned right now, Paul. And how many classes do you have for four-wheel vehicles? There's six. Mm -hmm. Six total divisions. And could we, uh, I'm going to remind everybody that uh, to follow the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and visit the website ppihc.org. Um, and I'll remind you again, I think if you're a race fan, uh, you know, that the question I have, is this live streamed? Yes. Yeah, um, we are live streaming it this year. And as you can imagine, just think if you were to go out one day and um, climb a 14er or go on a big hike and you were leaving your house and you know you talk to your your spouse and say well I don't know when I'll be back I'm not sure if I'm going to have service up there yeah um, that doesn't change when you're on Pikes Peak so when we talk about you know the the issues that the competitors have as far as challenges and everything Jeff went through um, imagine trying to network a 14,000 foot mountain that you don't own um, so it is a huge challenge and we have, it takes a village to pull it off. And I'm really proud of how far the live stream has come. Um, it's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect because again, we're, we're on a mountain, but um, there's about 25 really, really smart people that um, are working on it and year round. And, and to be fair, um, already the network build has started up there. So Yes, there will be a live stream and we're excited about it and we're excited that we've figured out the technology to make it happen. Um, but it is it is continually to be one of the, even as technology improves, um, it's really, really hard to live stream this bad boy. Oh, one year we had a producer come up and they do extreme sports and they said, this can't be difficult at all. And the marmots ate the cables connected <laughs> to the cameras there you go. Cameras <laughs> failed on the course. And then we have Rocky Mountain sheep that came and pushed all the hay bales over the side so they could break in and eat them. I mean, the challenges <laughs> you have on Pikes Peak to put a race on are unlike any other course. It takes about 300 plus people race day on the mountain to pull this thing off. And so to Jeff's earlier point, there's such a camaraderie. We have generations of people who are third and fourth generation families who work for this race. This is a really, this is a race of passion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. this, this is something that everybody who's involved really wants to be involved. Well, it shows. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have to say too, thank you to both of you for nurturing and preserving this uh, iconic event. Uh, you know, I, having experienced it uh, when it was a mix of paved and unpaved road surface, um, you know, one of the most profound memories in all my, you know, 49 years of motorsports uh, was seeing, uh, um, you know, 
Ivan Stewart go by in a Toyota, <laughs> uh, I believe it was a pickup truck at the time with uh, these twin vortices that went 35 feet in the air following him coming out of the tunnels as he went by at about 100 plus miles an hour. And uh, it, it's a spectacular thing to see in person. How do we access the live stream as a, as a fan or somebody who wants to watch this? Sure. Um, due to our partnership with Mobile One, it is going to be live on the Mobile One Facebook page starting at 7.30 a.m. is when we'll take the green flag, and that is on June 27th. So coming up real quick here. Well, that's great. Um, and then a couple of other questions here to, to kind of give background. You know, the um, with with the going to a digital reach now, do you have any metrics on how big the kind of global reach of this event is and how many, uh, uh, one, just a, how many people access it and what is the social media input imprint of this uh, event globally? Sure, it's really hard to um, pull out the exact ROI on, on those sort of questions because we do have such an international following. Um, the growth of our social media over the last 10 years has been huge, especially if you look at last year, for example, because we didn't have spectators on scene. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that is the most unique about Pikes Peak is the imagery and the photography, because yeah. there's such a juxtaposition between nature and motorsports that collides all at one time. And you could be at Devil's Playground on a practice day morning and you're above the clouds and it's a it's quiet, right? It's, it, it feels um, almost not real out of a movie. And then all of a sudden- A thousand horsepower car comes by without, yeah. without any attenuation of the, <laughs> of the sound. So um, we, do, we do track it. We have a group called Meltwater. Yeah. that tracks every article, every input. And it's millions and millions and millions, depending upon countries and coverage. Um, it's not uncommon for us to have 10, 15 international entries every year. Um, this race draws, Jeff can attest to this, this draws some of the best drivers in the world just because of the personal challenge. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's transcends everything that all of us in motorsports have wanted to do. And again, one of my sponsors one year said, this is where Formula One meets Woodstock. It is <laughs> just, um, it, you just have to be here to appreciate what it's like. And Jeff made the comment, you can be behind a factory effort, but you only qualified three seconds behind them because you figured out the hill a little bit better than the guy who's getting paid lots of money to run it. And uh, it, it, it's just, it's unsurpassed in motorsport. And Paul, to answer your questions too, we, what, what Fred was talking about, about tracking. Um, I think we average over the last three years, let's say 6,000 editorial articles written about the event. So that does not include social that doesn't, that is, that doesn't include mentions. That's literally editorial news articles written about the event. And that's an average over, over the years. So, um, and again, those, those are from all over the world, which is crazy. It's not just our local newspaper here. I mean, they come from, they come from everywhere. So this really is a worldwide international event. Uh, and then, uh, as you know, I travel a lot for my own business and travel all over the world. And it's, it's really interesting that I can be in, Asia, almost anywhere in Asia and anywhere in Europe. And you can mention this one race, this one mountain. And, yeah. and if they're at all a racing fan, they are really, it's really on their radar. And if anything, it, you know, for many years, I think that's changed lately, but uh, you know, certainly in the nineties, when I was racing here, it was more, uh, there was more awareness <laughs> overseas for Pikes Peak than there was in the United States. And I think that you know, the way it's evolved and everything, it really um, has a um, relevant place in the, the world of motorsport because, you know, we shifted from an interest in, you know, IndyCar and, and uh, various forms of track racing to people being fascinated by the rally scene. And the rally scene was played out once a year at Pikes Peak. And yeah those kind of things kind of linked a lot of things for the enthusiasts and, and kind of put Pikes Peak on the map. And I, I just have uh, uh, found that the, uh, it, the other side of it is, it is such a wonderful place as Fred mentioned and, and Megan mentioned from the visual sense. I mean, we're uh, maybe a little uh, spoiled here because we live within the mountains for the most 
part of people in Colorado. But even when any morning I'm up there and watch that sunrise up there, it's spectacular. And as you mentioned yeah. too, Paul, Ari Vatnin's film, uh, Climb Dance, you know, put this race on the map for the whole world because it was just so visually stunning of a Pujo racing up the mountain and sliding sideways and roosts of dirt and everything else that it has that natural built-in attraction because it combines the performance of automobiles that people are attracted to, but also the pure visual beauty of what the Rocky Mountains are about. And, and that uh, combination leads to great marketing opportunities, yeah. great sponsorship opportunities. And as we say too, the social media footprint just gets that much bigger because of the visuals that come out of this. And, and fortunately at Pikes Peak, we have amazing photographers and cinematographers that visit with us every year, especially the, the, the kind of official photographer of Pikes Peak being Larry Chen, who's one of the great talents, who, cha uh, talents out there who documents this race year after year and sends out images that people are just blown away with. So that attraction goes even way beyond the racing. Well, you've, you, you led me to the other part of this is that, uh, you know, the beauty of this event is conveyed by the filmmakers and the photographers is one of the differentiating attractors. It just, it, it in terms of uh, it literally as it, forgive the pun, it's at the pinnacle of motorsports aspiration or ambition because of it being this beautiful thing that you do when you you ascend this beautiful mountain and uh you know as we're looking forward to motorsport in this century the fact that there's also an opportunity for this to be a proving ground for uh environmentally friendly technologies we have an environmentally supposedly environmentally friendly technology with electric vehicles i know there's some debate about uh batteries and and uh the creation of the battery but that will no doubt be resolved over time but you do have this format that's welcoming to all forms and all powertrains where, where do you see this event going as the world changes uh how do you see it evolving well there's uh there's no secret that uh evs are are going to become very prominent in the world and the nation and and on pike's peak i i think that that is definitely going to be the future but i don't think that gas powered vehicles and will be will be going away anytime soon. You know, I think it's going to be this um, I think it's going to be a real testament and a, and a real battle to to see um, as as both develop what will continue to to um, show itself on Pikes Peak. But yeah. um, we would be naive to think that that 10 years from now, the the EV competition on Pikes Peak will will not be at the, the top of its game. Yes, we, with all the manufacturers had, moving that way, it's certainly one would assume that. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've actually had inquiries now on hydrogen powered vehicles, and we yeah. would, we would welcome that. Mm -hmm. I, I over the years, Paul, and you mentioned watching the truck. I mean, over the years, the cars have changed as the technologies change, and that's true. You know, David Donner, who lives here in town, he was the first one to run a car with fuel injection, and everybody looked at that and said, "Well, what's that?" And yeah, they yeah. did it from their IndyCar experience. So, you know, it, it, we are a proving ground. We welcome that. We work closely with manufacturers who want to come and prove themselves on Pikes Peak. Uh, we have records that can be set. And we, you know, much like Nuremberg Ring, uh, Jeff's been talking about this for years, but we want to encourage manufacturers to come and showcase their new technology. Yeah. And, and they are. Acura ran the, their car, the, their supercar, the first time on Pikes Peak. And to that point, it's kind of, it's really so open for this sort of thing because it's not a series. It's not something a manufacturer has to, you know, go to a sanctioned body and then plan on competing in 10 or 15 events. It's a one of event. So the ability to come into it, showcase something very special is uh, pretty unique there, but it's also so open to it. And like Megan said, you know, at one point there was only this 10 minute club and now we're, you know, in the eights and everything. So this ability uh, to build something very special for a special purpose allows people to innovate in a different way that maybe you could in a full racing series. Well, that, uh, that, that's to me the most interesting thing about this is that it's a place where the story you create is your own and it's ownable. Uh, and this personal challenge, I have to ask you, Fred, what's your personal best up the mountain? 
Time uh, unfortunately, it's right at 1101. I, uh, uh, I've had snow and slush and all that. Jeff knows I was lucky enough to win a time attack class one year, and I was third last year in open. I had modified a street Porsche, which is a dumb idea, by the way. <laughs> and uh, because I made a rear wheel drive, they put me in open. And I'm running against very specifically engineered cars for hill climbing. And everybody either screwed up, broke, or did something weird last year. So I came in third. So to the yeah. point, you've got to first, you've got to finish. And every year, I tell the rookies because I'm working with Jeff with the rookie program, we have about a 15% attrition rate because yeah. it is so hard on cars. Yeah. And um, cars that guys who come here who say, "Well, I've been racing my car, so I'm just fine." usually leave with their tail between your legs. They just, mm -hmm. the car doesn't run. Yeah. So you've got to get the car up the hill. You've got to get yourself up the hill. I'm sure Jeff has experienced um, some less than opportunistic moments on the hill, but I've run in the rain, the snow. It's, it's, you, you've qualifying is important. We qualify everybody based on speed, not by yeah. class. If you get a late qualifying time, because for whatever reason you didn't qualify well, you better count on looking at the weather radar because it may not be at all what you want to run in. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Again, you, uh, you're driving through uh, multiple weather systems as you're going up the, the mountain. And I have to ask you, Megan, have you been up the mountain and do you have a time? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've been up the mountain uh, quite, quite a few times, but uh, no, no one wants me uh, any, any part of that. But She's too good to put in a car. Um, but Paul, <laughs> one interesting piece that Jeff and Fred have both touched on that I wanted to hit on a little bit is what also makes this so unique and challenging for the competitors as well as the mechanics and the crew is the way we do structure our practice mornings and our qualifying. So yeah. as I mentioned, the competitors get one run on race day. Um, that's the first time in a year that they will have the opportunity to get a full run. Um, because the road is a toll road that's open to the general public, um, our practice mornings are in the morning, the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday before the race. And we start at sunup, which is usually around 5.15, 5.30. It depends on what section the competitors are in. And we break wow. the road into three different sections. So we have the lower section, a middle section and an upper section. So the competitors get as many, as many runs as they can in each section. And then they rotate throughout the week. The qualifying times are based on the fastest run in the lower section. So that's how we then set the run order on race day. Um, but again, that's what kind of what Jeff was talking about, about these mechanics, you know, and that was one thing I think everyone was unsure of with um, when Romain broke the record was, how is that car going to hold the charge all the way up? Because we haven't seen it go all the way up yet. Yeah. We see it in the yeah. lower section, really fast times, middle section, really fast times, upper section, really fast times. But the competitor has to put the full run together and the, and the machine has to put the full run together. So I think that's why I've obviously never summited Pike Speak as a competitor, nor will I, but the camaraderie up there when they do make it, um, is, is a once in a lifetime for some of these people well, and you can see why. And I wanna add, not only is it hard on the driver because you're up at two o'clock every morning or 2.15 and, and then you're unloading in the dark and trying not to run the car over your foot, uh, unloading, warm it up, get, it, get in line, try to get as many runs as you can and that's predicated on people not running off the mountain or having mechanicals that slow it down. And then your crew is doing the same thing. So by Friday, Everybody is just exhausted. It's much more like running a 24-hour race than it is to go to a normal race weekend. And so it's wearing and tearing on the machine. It's really tough on the crew. And when you do well up there, you really owe it to everybody else who is around you, who is supportive. And so there's a greater camaraderie, I'd say, at this race with your crew than you typically have. Um, yeah. It creates relationships. Yeah. Yes, and I think the thing that uh, um, you have here too is the sense that you're conquering something. Um, even if, if you don't win, you still conquered the mountain if you get up it. And, and which brings me to you, Jeff. I mean, uh, uh, converting a, uh, a street car to a race car is something I know you've done um, uh, because I rode in your Porsche, uh, your four-wheel drive Porsche 911 uh, when I visited you in Aspen and there it went up the mountain a little later on, became a rally car. Uh, 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 can you tell me uh, and the audience uh, kind of the experience a driver has 
driving up that mountain. You know, uh, we have a question from uh, uh, Sh uh, Sean Cridland about that. You know, we've talked about the cars, but what does the driver experience and feel going up that mountain? Yeah, it's it's been it's it's like no other, and we've kind of talked about that already. But I think that what I love is that there's a when you pull up to the line and like Megan just explained, it's a complex practice time and the mountain is divided up into thirds. When you pull up to the line, it's your one chance. There's no pit stops, there's no adjustments, there's no coming back on the next lap or anything. It's that one run to the top. And I love that focus that it takes. It takes everything you learned over the last 10 days or whatever you've been up there everything you've learned and you put it into that one run. And so that, you know, focus on a, a performing in that moment. And yet at the same time, you're going against the weather, you're going against the car conditions. Cause keep in mind, not only have you not driven to the summit in one run, your car hasn't. So the heat cycles that you went through in, in thirds suddenly add up the first third is the starting heat cycle for the second third and the second third third is started the heat cycle after it's come out yeah. of the second third so everything's kind of built up on it and for me you know i'm one of the few people now i hate to say that i actually have raced at pikes peak in all configurations meaning starting when it was all dirt to when it was half pavement half dirt to now that it's all pavement and people always ask me oh what do what do you like you know which one do you like the best? And oh, it must be much safer now that it's paved and all these kind of preconceived notions of it. But, you know, the reality is, is that um, in dirt, we, you know, rushed the corners, we braked, we rotated the car. And the moment the car goes into slip in a corner, it's released its energy. You know, that was the way the dirt days yeah. were. And it, once it released its energy in going into the slip, then you drove on the throttle around the corner, rally style. And, that was the style we went to the summit, but there were no guardrails, there were no visual landmarks, things like that. Now that it's paved, we're driving to the absolute limit of adhesion of the tires yeah. and, and breaking in everything, turning into the corner. And if for some reason you aren't where you think you <laughs> were, it is a problem because it's still just a two lane road. So that focus that it takes to deal with all of that is, is really different. And let alone the fact that in the dirt days, I would regularly run 12 and a half minutes, plus or minus 15 seconds. And now I'm one of the few people under 10 minutes. And, you know, it's kind of a little bit like watching a movie and fast forward now. Yeah. It, it really, yeah. you know, two and a half minutes going faster on exactly the same track is a big difference. And, and, but I love that commitment. And there's sequences of corners that I remember from the dirt days that have now been translated to pavement days that I just, you know, you lay in bed at night, you think about it, you think yeah. about turning into that, building the sequences together. And the other side of it is now that I'm coaching for the GT4 club sport class, I'm getting the verbally explain and kind of pull back the curtain to my process at Pikes Peak through all these years. And it's really been fun for me because in some ways it's even opened my own eyes that, oh, I didn't have that part quite right. So I, I'm ready to go back and race again. So yeah. Well, it, it, Are you coming it, back, Jeff, next year then? Huh? I hope so. Down. Well, I'll loan you my Formula Ford, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Need someone new to drive it and make excuses for how it turned out. Um, but uh, I have a, a, you know, another question from, uh, let's see, uh, Joseph, uh, I think Weyher is, is the name. Uh, motorcycles, will they be back for the 100th running? You know, Paul, that is something that's yet to be determined by our board of directors. Um, after the 2019 events event, it was uh, three motor motorcycle fatalities in, in eight years. And the board at that time decided to put a pause on the program and wait to see um, what this race looks like without the motorcycle program. You know. Motorcycles haven't been a part of the of the race um, all all 99 runnings. They've they've had their ups and downs, and they've been off, and then they've been on. And so, um, the board decided to take a pause, and they were going to reassess it after the 2020 event. Well, obviously, with COVID and everything, it was hard to um, look at last year's event as a just without spectators with a shorter field. It, it was hard yeah. to look at it at its full capacity. And so um, 
the, 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 it is still on pause right now and the board will be looking at it um, after this year's race and, and we'll make a final determination um, then on, on the future of motorcycles after this year's event. Well, thanks for that. And uh, I, I think that, you know, when, when I'm looking at this event and uh, uh, it's unusual and important place in motorsport, uh, is, is there something beyond what you do now that sponsorship or money uh, would transform your opportunity? I mean, credit to Broadmoor, credit to, uh, um, you know, Gran Turismo for being your sponsors and also uh, credit to Mobile One being a partner and uh, carrying the live stream. But is there another level that this event can go we, to? We all think there is. Uh, a few years ago, we were able to pave the pits. Prior mm -hmm. to that, while it's charming to work under a tree in the dirt, um, <laughs> it's pretty tough to launch a serious effort doing that. And uh, we're always looking for not only things that could physically make the race better, but how can we do better? How do, how do we make it more compelling? And here, here's the good news. All the people who've come as sponsors buy into this race. We don't, we, we're not having sponsors who do a year and then say, well, this isn't getting me what I want. If anything, they're doubling down. And so we think the more, the, the answer is yes. I, I think we continually want to make this race better. They're working on the new Summit House and it will not be completed this year, but it will be But for next year's race in terms of the facilities. It will greatly improve the experience for the drivers on top. We work very closely with the architects to see that there's nothing that's going to impede the finish area and we're straightening out the finish area to make it even safer. I mean, I, th I think the answer is we're all committed to making this race better and bigger every year and dollars help do that. As you know, in motorsport, yeah. it's, uh, it, it will help the organization It helps the competitors. So anything we can do to work with sponsors, make their ROI better. Um, we can do that for all the reasons yeah. Jeff mentioned, as far as an effort by, uh, manufacturers. And, and Paul, to your point, I think what's been really interesting this year is we, we obviously thought fundraising would be a huge challenge with, with the pandemic, but um, our sponsorship reach goes well beyond the, the three you mentioned. We actually work with, um, is either an in-kind donation or sponsorship over a hundred different organizations. Um, it takes a village to, to put this race on and whether it's um, you know, the Broadmoor Gran Turismo or the local tough shed that down the street that off gives us a, a tough shed for us to store the water in for the VIP tent, you know, whatever it is, we work with over a hundred different organizations in some way, shape or form um, to help make this race grow. And huge, as, as Fred said, I think a huge, uh, um, huge piece of it is, is a lot of our returning sponsors. You know, they hung with us last year through a pandemic and no spectators and and again, we kind of anticipated maybe losing some this year, but um, everyone came back with open arms. I think once you see Pike Speak once, once you're a part of it, it's hard to walk away. Well, it, absolutely. And, and what I think is interesting about this, as opposed to traditional circuit racing uh, sponsorships or uh, series sponsorships or team sponsorships, you're sponsoring a story. Do uh, you get to tell your own story in that sponsorship? And, uh, and you're sponsoring a lifestyle, a mindset that uh exists beyond the physical event it's something that stands you know above the plane of all other forms of motorsport literally and figuratively um and, and taking that story and amplifying it brings me to the, one of the final questions i have i have a few more from the the people that are watching this but um you know this was once a televised event uh the world's changing television doesn't hold the same power that it once did but have you had conversations with anyone uh, about, you know, reintroducing this to broadcast or to uh, one of the larger subscription channels that does these things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's an ongoing conversation that I'm having every year with many different groups. You know, um, this does this event, even though so it's live streamed and then even though it hasn't been on on live broadcast, the, uh, the number of things that are done post-production, like you said, every, every competitor has a story. So just imagine every competitor in their, in their journey, in their YouTube channel, in their social media. Um, and, you know, last year we had a phenomenal three-part series that was on Motor Trend that was post-production. Yeah. So I saw that. It, it, can, it continues to grow and grow, Paul. We have, um, I, I think we have maybe six or seven groups coming up this year looking to do production. 
um, you know, we're having large conversations already with groups about next year's event because it's 2022. The live broadcast component, um, there is plenty of discussion out there. What's a little bit challenging about our event is the, let's say, uncertainty about it. So, for example, you know, our event can be anywhere from eight hours long to 12 hours long, and that's a long time to do a live production. So you could do something, let's say, trim it down to two hours, and you could hit the, the top competitors in the field, and you could have this big plan and have it be on, on network, and then you have what happens last year, and we have a two-hour ice delay yeah. to start the race, and all of the sudden, those two hours are scrambled because there's nothing to show, because we can't run, because there's ice at the top. Yes, those pesky oh. ice delays. You know, so that there's, <laughs> like I said, logistically, there's a lot more things than that. But but definitely know the long-term goals of this organization are to get as many eyes on this beautiful race as possible. Well, that, that's a noble goal. And I, I think that uh, it, this really celebrates the original spirit of motorsports. This is, this is a core sample all the way back to the beginning of the sport still. This is how it started with this spirit of adventure and, you know, the, the man and machine against a, a physical challenge. And uh, I'm so glad that it, it's still with us. Uh, it, it maybe is becoming more meaningful in its, as it approaches uh, 100 runnings here um, and in its second century. So uh, I had a couple of quick questions from the audience. Um, uh, uh, what, I think it's, uh, uh, Jason is asking us here, uh, is there going to be a vintage car run group? We don't have a vintage run car group per se, but we do have some pretty interesting vintage cars in the race. We have a, uh, turbo diesel powered pickup truck that's running, I think what, 1100 horsepower, um, on the hill this year. Wow. Um, we think for the 2022 we may bring back Jeff's working with sort of a champions class. One of the people he's talking to is Bruce Canepa, who ran a Freightliner, and we may have a yeah, you know, Freightliner coming up the hill. I remember I mean, that, yes. Uh -huh. we, 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 I'm also on the committee that, that accepts drivers, and we're up for some unusual cars. Um, we've had, it's not this year, but we've had a 1939 uh, Cadillac that has a NASCAR chassis under it on the oh, hill. Wow. Um, there's been some cool stuff, and your Formula Ford would fit right in. <laughs> yes, I would. I would probably run it uh, with the new uh, uh, the motor out of the Mach E if I went up there, but uh, a Mustang Mach E. But I think uh, the thing I think that's interesting here is you don't know what's going to happen, and you touch on it, Megan, when you're answering the question about the broadcast. There's a double-edged sword, but the fact that you don't know is probably the greatest attractor of this event. Uh, it's unpredictable in every way. Um, and, you know, I, I personally like seeing uh, the motorcycles on the mountain. I hope there's a way for you to, you know, to me, that's been some of the most compelling things I've seen, you know, uh, uh, but I know you have safety's primary concern of everyone involved. Um, uh, but, you know, the motorsports world has something very unique in this event. And I, I have to say, if you haven't watched this before, remember to follow the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, you know, follow it on race day on the live stream and, you know, tell us anything else that uh, if someone wanted to see the event live, uh, Fred and, and Megan, what would they need to do? Well, that is the thing. We are very excited to welcome spectators back on Pikes Peak this year. You know, last year we felt super lucky to be able to hold the event. Um, we had postponed it and then we had to, had to pull the trigger on those spectators. And, you know, it was, it, we had it during August when the pandemic was not even close to anywhere over and or in the, in the midst of it. And so we talked as an organization, I think last year, the easy thing would have been for us to just, just cancel, right? That's the easy thing to do. Um, but as you mentioned, the history and the legacy of this event goes well beyond what's easy to do. And, you know, the only things that have stopped this um, event from, from running in the past have been world wars and we weren't gonna let a pandemic stop us. So last year we were very, we felt very, um, very proud to continue to put this race on and, and do it in a safe manner with all the COVID restrictions and, um, and pull it off. But we were missing our fans and it wasn't the same. And so this year 
We are welcoming fans back to Pikes Peak. Um, we have no capacity limits outside of the normal capacity limits, which are a, a highway and parking uh, and that sort of thing. But as far as COVID goes, we don't have any um, any restrictions there. And so our, our tickets are available online for purchase. And we're very excited to have this race um, back how it used to be. That's terrific. Could you uh, let the audience know the days of activity that they can buy a ticket for and and uh, and give them that website address one more time? Let's yeah, sell some tickets thing. here. Well, I was going to say, Paul, before we do that, one of the cool things that Jeff hasn't talked about is when you finish the race, all the competitors wait on top until we're released. Yeah. As you come down, all the spectators come to the side of the road and everybody high fives and slaps your hand. Wow. And little kids get a chance. You can stop and they can talk to you and hit your car and do all that really special it's a real group effort so as far as tickets megan will yeah, give so you that tickets so. are available on our website which is ppihc.org and we do sell them by family pack i kind of hit on this but we are limited in the number of vehicles we can park at each spectator area so you do get discounted discounted tickets based upon the number of um of people in your vehicle so each ticket gets cheaper depending on if you buy a six pack five pack four pack things along those lines um, and then I think camping is almost sold out, but it is the only, uh, the only day you're allowed to camp on Pikes Peak um, the night before our event. And so we have limited camping passes and I think we're close to being sold out on that. So I would, uh, I would pick those up um, sooner rather than later. And then we have some, our tech inspection on the, the Monday before the event, if you're here in Colorado Springs, um, is free and open to the general public. And that's a big event too. That that's a, a really fun fun happening. So well, thank you all of you for this really fascinating uh, discussion today. And it's great to see you again, Megan and Fred. Good to meet you and Jeff. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for thank having you. us. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad uh, we had you back on, Megan. You know, we wanted to give you a full hour because during online race industry week, there was a panel. I love the title of that panel, you know, uh, uh, Unlimited or whatever. And uh, and that's the, the spirit of this industry. And uh, Jeff said it perfectly during the webinar is you almost invited to cheat. <laughs> it's like you come up with a clever way, just make it as quick as, uh, make that car as fast as possible, bring all the new technology on board. So that's wonderful. And that's what we love about, about that, that race. So thank you very much for joining us today. I forgot to mention that we were actually live on racer.com and on Facebook uh, live as well. And the webinar has been recorded as well as the first part with Giant Finishing. We'll be posting both recording on the ePortrait platform later today. They will be uh, promoted as well on YouTube, social media. We'll provide it to you, uh, Jeff and uh, Fred and Megan as well, if you want to use it too. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today. We will be back next week at nine o'clock for another episode of Race Industry Now with Bestline. And we're going to be talking diamond nano loop products for motorsports. So if you're back speak competitors, there is some really cool things being done on the diamond nano loop. And you might want to use those products in, in your car next, uh, you know, in a few weeks, Jeff. So uh, <laughs> please join us. Thank you very much for being part of uh, today's program. That was the 105th tech webinar we produced. And this one was co-produced with Racer and the wonderful team that Paul runs uh, at racer.com and, and Racer Magazine. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll uh, see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Registering on ePartrade is easy. Fill out your name, email, phone number and create a secure password. Next, select your business type. Choose supplier if you're looking to display products or services and connect with buyers. Choose racing business if you're looking to find new parts and connect with suppliers. Choose race team if you own or are a member of a professional racing team. Begin typing your company name. We most likely already have your company in our database which you can select from the drop-down. Then, enter your job title. Choose Claim Company if you'll be editing your company profile. Other members of your company can choose Join Company if they'd like to use ePartrade as well. You can view and agree to our terms of use here. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, choose Accept. 
click register now and your registration will be submitted for approval. You'll need to confirm your email once it goes through. To keep our platform industry only, you'll be approved shortly after. If we require additional proof of business, we'll reach out. Welcome to ePartrade.